0: Welcome to episode 50 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. Tonight, I am joined by my host who has put up with my Tuesday moods for the last 50 episodes, and the guy who rocks all things Civil War
1: more than anybody else I know, Darren Weeks. Wow. Deja vu. (laughs) 50 episodes. Holy crap. How the the hell have we made it this far? I don't know
0: why you put up with me, but here you are. I'm not sure how we
1: made it this, how these last 50 minutes, the (laughs) last 50 episodes, but
0: it's another (laughs) story. Must be the DQ guest. Discounts oh, I'm yeah. giving it must you be
1: must be something. Must be something. something. Right. So how? Oh, definitely. So how are you? What's going on? What's new?
0: Not too much. We were at episode fifty, which um, we are obviously taking it back to the Western Theater tonight. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's hot. It's sticky. It's steamy. It's a very Western Theater Atlanta type of day. So and believe me, this, when it when it's
0: hot and hot like that and it rains, Darren gets really grumpy. Darren oh, gets yeah. like Mary oh. on a Tuesday.
1: Oh, definitely. No, no question about it's that. Raining it's raining again. Definitely. It's rained every day. It's been really it's raining
0: cost, again. That's it's okay. gray. Yeah. It's gloomy. It's, definitely, it's raining again. Yeah,
1: it's gray. It's always gray every day. <laughs> it's going to be cold. It's going to be gloomy. It's going to last for the rest of your life.
0: The glass is always half empty.
1: Oh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, what's new with you? I, I know once again, we have to ask a very important question.
0: What am I drinking? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well.
0: I am drinking. We're, we're waiting. <laughs> I'm drinking Hazy Twilight from Bayfield Brewing Company, which is their new New England IPA, which I chose that because obviously we're going to be talking about Oliver Otis Howard tonight, and he's one of my favorite New Englanders. So I thought, have a New England IPA for that. And I'm drinking it out of my mug that has Sherman Staff on it. Anybody watching this on YouTube will notice that the background that I'm using is Sherman Staff. That's what's on the mug that I'm using tonight. Must be the biggest
1: mug ever you have. It is. Anyway. (laughs) What are you drinking. drinking? I'm drinking Castle Island from here in uh, New England here. I'm drinking it because it has a cannon on it, which is very cool. Nice. I'm drinking out of my North Civil War Champions mug because despite the stories of the general you will talk about later on today, this is one that the North wins and one that he wins handily as far as a lot of different ways. So I thought that it was appropriate to uh, to talk about a Northern victory tonight. Since this basically was, to it's debated, right, Yeah. by certain people, but... We consider it a northern victory, I think, I, I think we can that call it
0: a northern victory. The Battle of Ezra Church, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight, is part of the Atlanta campaign. Um, so Sherman's been on this campaign since May of 1864. Some of the bigger battles in the ca- campaign, we've done episodes on Kennesaw Mountain being one of them. This is one that does not get talked about a lot, but it's one that I think is a very underrated battle for a number of reasons, not just for the battle itself, but for the commanders here. Not just all of Otis Howard, but Stephen D. Lee on the Confederate side as well John Bell Hood has been newly put in place of Army of Tennessee is commanding that as well as like you know Black Jack Logans in this as well and and he does pretty well but it's as much about the battle as it is about Who's commanding and kind of the aftermath is, is just as interesting as the battle itself. But the battle is very, very horrific as we're going to talk about the aftermath of that. In some ways, it is a lot like Franklin and that never yeah. gets mentioned. And it's that's it's, important to consider when you're looking at Hood as the commander of Army of Tennessee, because this battle is, and we'll talk about this at the end, this battle is why the soldiers start to feel about him the way that they do.
1: Yeah, when we were talking about earlier parts of this Atlantic campaign, specifically on Ken- We talked about what Sherman likes, right? Sherman loves to be attacked. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like to be the attacker. He likes to fight defensively. Not that so much he didn't like to fight offensively because he did what he had to do, but primarily he loved playing defense. And he has that quote where he says, invite them to attack. They'll only beat their own brains out. So what he wants to do is ideally set set up a situation where he's attacked. And of all the battles of his campaign, this is the one he gets what he wants. This is one that it's the he leads the you know the mouse right to the cat is what he really does, and it's really by happenstance. It isn't by design. It mm-hmm. just we'll talk about how the detail goes. But Sherman knew by Atlanta he had more men, and he knew that if he was attacked because he had, and he was entrenched. There was really no chance he was gonna lose because he had too many guys. He knew that any attack against his entrenched army at this point was was gonna be a fool's errand mm-hmm. because he just didn't they just didn't they didn't have the numbers. But what's interesting going into this though is the changes both armies had going into this part of this campaign. So yeah. and right off the top was the death of James McPherson, which is a butcher's big deal.
0: Yeah. On July the 22nd, 1864, the Battle of Atlanta happens. That kind of forces Hood. Into Atlanta, but what happens is McPherson ends up getting killed. Um, James Burbsey McPherson, very well respected on both sides of the Civil War, his death is greatly affects Sherman. It also greatly affects John Bell Hood too. Sherman wrote to Halleck after and said, "The sudden loss of McPherson was a heavy blow to me. I can hardly replace him, but he must have have a successor. His immediate successor, the one that takes over for him when he's killed, is John Black Jack Logan, a political general from." Illinois. He is actually, he goes into the war a Democrat, but after the war, he's he's a Republican. Uh, just one thing to mention about McPherson, too, is, and this is debated, he is the second highest ranking officer that will be killed in the Civil
1: War. And that was a big one, too. And as you mentioned, it affected both armies, North and South. Mm-hmm. He was a very beloved guy and a very respected guy. Replacing him was not going to be easy for Sherman. He knew it. There were three guys, primarily, he had to choose from. Okay, we'll talk about them real quick. We'll tell them more detail here in a second. First, guys, to your point, is John Blackjack Logan. Mm -hmm. He was a politician from Illinois, and we all know how much Sherman hated politicians. He was also not West Point trained. That was going to be a big deal. So although he was popular with his troops, and he certainly was, and he expected the gig and he wanted the gig. Oh, big um, time. That fact that he was a politician and he didn't have West Point was going to be an issue for Sherman.
0: And he's a little Um, bit of a loose cannon, too
1: in some ways. Yeah, he was. Door number two is fighting Joe Hooker, mm-hmm. a good Massachusetts man. And he did well as a corps commander under Sherman in a, in the Atlantic campaign. Admittedly, he had those troubles at Chancellorsville. Everybody knows about that in 1863. Yeah. He was a West Pointer, but he was also that quasi-political general. And he was kind of that slippery shit of a guy. He's a guy you called to get free cable for five bucks. He would hook up. you know. That, that's who he yeah. was. He was just a shifty guy that you could not be trusted. He was also a pain in the butt. He just was. He ran right?
0: his mouth off too. But I mean, the thing with this is like when he goes out to the Western Theater and this doesn't get mentioned a lot, this is the equivalent to when Sheridan goes to the Eastern Theater and you have Warren and Sheridan. This is the same level of ego going on here. The two do not like each other at all. Hooker is the senior officer. He is above Blackjack and he's also above the other guy that is a possible replacement. Right. And
1: you knew damn well, Sherman, if he did promote a guy like Joe Hooker, he'd be looking over his shoulder because Sherman ideally was going to probably want his job eventually. Exactly. Realistically. Speaking. Yeah. That, and that's, that was probably a factor too. The third guy is a guy, Mary, I don't know if you ever heard of him, but his name is Oliver Otis <laughs> Howard. Okay. He also struggled in Chancellorsville to say the least. He certainly did. Still running, by the way. Yeah. But he was he was reliable, but he had a reputation of being a shaky field commander amongst his peers and he just he just did he just yep. now you could debate whether or not it's fair or not and you know you know gettysburg people think he did well some people think he did but what, what, whatever reputation preceded him that he was somebody who could not be trusted as a field commander by just by certain people he was supported heavily by george the rock of thomas oh, right no. Oh no, it's not like we said before. He's gonna say hey, oh, oh no. Yes. Oh no supported oh oh in this one happened, right? <laughs> he certainly did. And he had that quote, he's and all of um what Thomas said about Howard was you cannot do better than to put Howard in command. Now Thomas was a very respected guy by a lot of people, especially Sherman. So that had to carry a lot of weight. So Sherman was certainly comfortable with Howard, and ultimately it was gonna be all Otis Howard who will be chosen to replace Birmsy McPherson to command an army of the Tennessee. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about some of the fallout that happened with this. Obviously, Joe Hooker was not very thrilled about this decision, Mary. No, nope. he mean girls uh, it out of all, there too. We all, he, we all know yeah. how us how us Massachusetts men get more in bad moods, Mary. We all know that.
0: Oh but yes, it's a lot yeah. like a Canadian in a bad mood on a Tuesday.
1: <sighs> Tell me about it. But that's <laughs> how the, so that 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 was the big that was the school for the most part heading up this part of the campaign for 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 Sherman.
0: Yeah. So A little bit more background about this because there's a little bit of drama that goes on behind the scenes with this. So you've got these three that are potentials and we know right away that Hooker is not happening. He he can be nixed off the list right away. Just because Sherman is like, fuck that. I am not having that guy in charge. The other problem, too, is like Slocum is all the way up in Vicksburg right now because he didn't get along with Hooker. And he bitched so mm-hmm. much when he got out to the Western Theater. they like, just send that guy up to Vicksburg so we don't have to listen to him. And like you said, you know, Hooker has had successes on this Atlanta campaign. But it's the ego thing. He runs his mouth. And he just
1: doesn't. He's just that guy look. in the bar. Well, look at that. It's like Darius Couch wanted to know a part of him. He left. Yeah took took who he took all those defenses of pennsylvania after yep. chances of Bill because he had wanted nothing to do it. so he is a toxic personality to say the least
0: yep exactly yeah and so we can nix him right away so the other
1: one is blackjack logan so
0: sherman goes to thomas to discuss who he should have in charge sherman says well blackjack is in charge right now what do you think and what was thomas's response to that oh no oh no <laughs> <laughs> that was it. No, that that was probably his response because Thomas does not like Black Jack Logan. Before the Atlanta campaign began, shockingly, there was a bit of drama between the two of them. The Army of the Tennessee was operating outside the limits of its department, which was on the east side of the Mississippi River. The transportation for that was reliant upon Thomas's Army of the Cumberland. In March of 1864, Logan goes to Sherman to complain that Thomas is restricting the use of the railways by requiring passes and Logan just thinks I should just be able to freely use them. And then um, Thomas is like, Oh, no, you can't use the railways. So Sherman tells Thomas that he wants he's thinking of Logan and Thomas said Logan is a troublesome fellow. And he was hard to get along with. And then Thomas goes even further. If you put Logan in charge, I will resign. I'm going to leave. So then that's when uh, Sherman's like okay well then um what do you think of Howard <laughs> and that's that's where we get that's where we get Howard but i don't think it was just thomas's decision like sherman said that he needed men that were soldiers that were going to follow orders you know and also that had that you know that training from West Point that was the administrative side of things and he felt that Howard actually had a lot more experience and could handle that part of it more so than Blackjack could
1: one guy who really didn't get considered who probably could have would have been Francis Blair actually who was who was commander of the yes. 17th corps here yeah, yeah, but Blair he was wasn't part of, he wasn't part of the equation for the most part but Howard's going to be the guy. I think he was a safe choice. I think he yeah. fell. But obviously, Sherman was going to keep his eye on him. sits set up on the Union side where Oliver Rodas Howard is now in charge of the Army of the Tennessee. Yeah as they're beginning that really important phase of this campaign yep.
0: it was actually really funny when sherman and howard are out riding the lines one day and sherman said how would you like mcpherson's army to command and howard responded i have a good corps, and and i am satisfied and as general is senior to me in rank he may be deeply offended and howard kept saying that you know no 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 it should be hooker i don't want to you know he doesn't want to cause shit, right And then so Sherman just point blank says to him, hooker has not the moral qualities that I want, not adequate to command. But if you don't want the promotion, there's plenty who do and Howard's just like okay I'm grateful for your confidence and that of General Thomas and I will undertake anything you want me to I'll take it and Sherman he does say that he he wanted to succeed in taking Atlanta and in order to do that he felt he needed soldiers that were purely and technically soldiers men who would obey orders and execute them promptly and on time for I knew that we would have to execute some delicate maneuvers requiring the utmost skill nicety and precision and I believe that General Howard would do all those all these faithfully and well and I think the result Justified my choice. And the reason that Sherman knows this is that because uh, he and Howard fought together in the battles for Chattanooga, which we all know how Missionary Ridge went for Sherman. But from there, Sherman does gain a respect for Howard, and the two of them actually have become quite good friends. And he actually writes him in December of 1863, telling Howard how much he respects him and that he hopes that they can work together in the future. So I think this is a decision based on. Not just the fact that Howard is from West Point and that he's had the experience, but also that Sherman has fought with all these men and he sees him as being this this one guy that is the soldier that is gonna obey and that's what he needs.
1: Yep. Yeah, he needed he needed a steady Eddie is what he needed. Yeah. Somebody who wasn't gonna rock the boat, somebody who had something to prove, somebody who was more important about wanting to fight defensively, and somebody who he wasn't gonna wasn't gonna be a pain in the ass. So really if you think about it, Howard really does check off all the boxes. He yeah. really, really does.
0: Yep, right? he's not gonna be a drama queen. He's not gonna be like Hooker who mean girls it out of the Western theater by basically his last words are Oh, yeah. Chancersville was lost because of Oliver Otis Howard. And then he fucks Uh off and leaves. But as we're going to see, like Blackjack is not going to be happy with this decision. But Howard does a lot. To make sure that he shows that he
1: respects him. Now, on the other side of the equation is the Confederacy, and their deal wants a lot of changes themselves. And John Bell Hood, he's going to take over the Army of Tennessee in July of 1864. So, as we talked about this one of the previous episodes, Jefferson Davis thinks that Joseph E. Johnson is not being aggressive enough against Sherman. So, he wants an aggressive guy. He wants someone who is Rrr, to get in there. So, mm-hmm. he's going to pick John Bell Hood. Now, John Bell Hood will say right off the bat, This is not 1862-63 John Bell Hood. He's been injured. He's been busted up a little bit. Resembles a Red Knight more than he does John Bell Hood from previous years. Mm -hmm. He's somebody who, you know, he's paid the price, and he has. But it, it, it definitely does take its toll. Now, Hood... Because he gets promoted to the Army of Tennessee, he needs to find a new corps commander for his old corps because mm-hmm. he ain't doing it anymore. So he also has three choices. His first choice is Patrick Claiborne. Yep. Marry your friend Patrick. Old patty yep. boy, right? Irish guy, real strong record. He's very close with William Hardy, yep. which is not a good thing because Hood hates him. He also wrote that emancipation plan where he wanted to free the slaves to make them Confederate soldiers. And that was political suicide for anybody who wanted to climb. So Patrick Claiborne, despite the fact that he probably would have been the best choice is probably not going to be realistically considered. Now, the second choice is Benjamin Cheatham. Another guy we've talked about, hard-fighting guy, hard-drinking guy. Likes to have a good time. He he was. He certainly was. But he also had a reputation of being a complainer because of the experiences he had with Braxton Bragg and previous campaigns. But they're just
0: like, these are the two that were at Kennesaw you know at right. what's now Cheatham's Hill they're aggressive but not to the point of being stupid about it.
1: Well, I think either of those choices would have been a good one. Oh. Cheatham would have been a, the, the, if you look at Cheatham you know, would you, have been. You, yeah. If you're trying to if you're trying to compare the decision that Sherman had versus the decision that Hood had.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Hood had a tougher choice because he had he had better guys to choose from yep. admittedly. I think Sherman picked the right guy. I think Hood clearly chose poorly if you ask me, okay? Yeah. So the third guy is, uh, is Stephen D. Lee. Now, he's a distant cousin of Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. He commands a group called the Department of the Alabama and Mississippi, which is outside of Hood's army. So he's not even part of the Army of Tennessee. He's popular. Mm-hmm. The troops like him. He had the confidence of a lot of his generals, a lot of his peers, a lot of the senior guys. He's also he's friends West... with John Bell Hood, too. He's friends with Hood, but, you know, he, but he also has a lot of support from others, E.P. Alexander. Mm-hmm. He says he's a natural-born soldier. Jefferson Davis, the head of the Confederacy, he, the president, he says, of, of Stephen D. Lee, one of the best soldiers this war ever produced. What Hood is going to do is he is going to think about one of these three guys. Now, now that all sounds well and good for those quotes, but Lee had some issues, okay? He was in charge of that Department of Alabama and Mississippi. Mm-hmm. He was, for the most part, defending Mississippi pretty well against the Union mm-hmm. for the most part. He does get in trouble in a battle called the Battle of Tupelo, where he gets completely punked on this mm-hmm. one. The reason why is he goes up against an entrenched Union army with more numbers and attacks and attacks them frontally, is what he does. Yep. Which is kind of foreshadowing what this battle is going to be. Many in the South, despite the fact that they got whipped up pretty good, the Southern press, which was more Southern propaganda at this point, felt that this was a big Southern victory. Yeah, they made it out they...
0: to be just completely into a victory. And that's like, you know, the thing with, with Stephen D. Lee is he he's coming into this well respected, but his track record is just not, it, again, it goes back to the experience, like Cheatham and Claiborne have the experience. Hood, I think, is picking him because he's his friend and they went to West Point together. And that's another interesting thing to note about this battle is Hood, Lee, and Howard were all at West Point at the same time. And Howard mm-hmm. and Stephen D. Lee are actually friends.
1: Yeah. Now, Lee was outranked by both Cheatham and Claiborne, Mm -hmm. certainly. Stephen D. Lee never led an infantry division, never led a corps at this point. He wasn't in the Army of Tennessee. He didn't know Atlanta, didn't know the terrain, didn't know know anything. Right? Didn't didn't know anything. Could barely say Chattahoochee, (laughs) right?
0: Look how far you've come in 50 episodes, Weeks.
1: Look at you. One day after this podcast, I learn how to say Chattahoochee. You so, get a gold star. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> despite all of this, despite all of these things, Hood is going to inexplicably choose Stephen D. Lee to command a corps, okay, in his army. I think part of it, too, is I think he probably didn't see Lee as a threat to his power. Yeah. Because don't forget, he was newly appointed, too. And he'd been in- lobbying behind the scenes. You know, Jefferson Davis was changing these these commanders, you know, the way you, you change cans out of the refrigerator every 30 seconds for the most part. And so I think what happened was he wanted to make sure he, he didn't bring somebody in who was going to maybe be too good, maybe. And I'm just speculating yeah. here. Either that or he really, really, really hoped he'd be like Robert E. Lee. He thought maybe there was some lineage. Who knows? But whatever it was, he thought he really hoped this was going to be the best. Now, we'll tell you right off the bat, this was not Hood's best day here. He clearly had lost the fastball at this point for Ooh. whatever reason he did. Yeah. Lee's choice was questioned at the time, but you know what? Hood said, "Freak, YOLO. We're we'll going. We're we'll going with Stephen D. Lee, so that he's going to command a core in this battle." Now Howard. On the 27th of July, 1864, Sherman is going to have him move his new command, the Army of the Tennessee west of the city, to the right end of the Union Army. He's going to move him pretty quick. Mm-hmm. What he wants to do, he wants to cut Hood's last railroad supply line, the Macon and Western Railroad. He want this the only <laughs> line entering Atlanta that's not destroyed at this time. Yeah. And, and Sherman knows that if he cuts off this line, Hood's going to have to withdraw from the city. Realistically, that's going to be it. But yeah. this is oh, it's the only way in and out. So that, that's what this—that's what's going to happen with this. Now, Hood on the 27th, he's not stupid. He knows that's probably what he's going to want to do. And he anticipates Sherman's move is going to attack that that Macon and Western Railroad. He got some intel by... John, the old War Child Wheeler in the cavalry, that they were moving in that direction. So he's like, okay, I I know what he's doing. They knew they were moving in that direction. He knew that's where the train line was. He probably said, well, that's got to be what they're doing because that's what I would do. He's going to use Stephen D. Lee's core, that new core, to intercept Howard and stop and stop him. He's going to defend a road called the Lick Skillet Road, which is, sounds a fantastic name for a road, by the Lick way. Skillet. Lick Skillet Road. Is that but the road the job, that leads into Rough and Ready? Oh, my goodness gracious. There's some, some hard times on that road there. <laughs> Stephen D. Lee, and this is the thing that's interesting about this plan, is this is a defensive thing. This is not to attack. This is to defend. Mm-hmm. He wants his troops to get up on that Lick Skillet Road on a ridge line and set up their line to get ready to hit Howard as he approaches. He's then going to use Alexander Stewart A.P. Stewart, his core, once this happens, once he has Howard engaged and stopped, he wants Stewart to go around Howard's right flank and hit. Now, Howard had a reputation, and everybody knows it, that he could be turned on his flank pretty easily. And I think Hood had assumed that Howard probably had learned his lesson. Because he was going to try it again. So in his mind, he was going to set up that defensive line on lick Skiller Road using Stephen D. Lee, mm-hmm. get them engaged, get them locked up. And then once it's the shit's hitting the fan, he's going to send Stewart on the right flank where he must have assumed Howard would not defend. And he was going to counterattack and he was going to absolutely pound him. In that, and that was going to achieve two goals. It was going to slow Sherman's march, slow his roll. And what it was going to do is it was going to protect the railroad. So that's, that's really, in a nutshell, what it was, is what he wanted to do. And as we talk about this battle going forward... The plan goes off the wagon pretty quickly.
0: It, it it does. And so the thing is, is like Sherman has started this plan before Howard is even in charge. And it's Blackjack that actually starts this. He starts, you know, making preparations and all that. He finds out in the 26th, like, yeah, you're not in charge anymore. Here's OO, your new commander. Have fun with that. The thing that happens on the, over on the Confederate side is John Bell Hood gives a speech. Now, it's not as bad as that, that speech that, uh, what's his face that P Ridge gives Earl Van Dorn. <laughs> it's not as bad as that speech. Um, but but he says, experience has proved to you that safety in the time of battle in to getting into the close quarters with your enemy. Hood tells them you're going to be in peril if the enemy keeps flanking you out of position, you have to will it and God will grant you the victory your commander and your country expect. So he's basically tell them go right up there, you might be fucked, but go get me a victory. He's trying to get his troops to become aggressive because at this point, the troops are already not very happy that that Hood is in charge. Johnston was the favorite. Howard is going to take his men. He's going to arrive there and he's going to immediately start
1: entrenching. Hood's plan's a good one, actually. Except the problem is, there's a few problems, is he's, he has a new general in charge of it. And that's mm-hmm. the problem. Now, John Bell Hood, he's got 99 problems, but aggressive in the same one of them. Okay? <laughs> that's the deal. The problem with this plan is that there's really a, there's really a handful of issues there that are. Hood's plan has. So first of all, it assumed that when Lee got there, Ezra Church was going to be, no, one was gonna be no one's going to be there.
0: No one's going to be there, yeah.
1: He assumed that he'd be the first one there and they would arrive in that that ridge line at the Lick Skillet Row would be unoccupied. That was a big yep. problem with that. So his army could set up those defenses before Howard got there, despite the fact that Howard left earlier, which I don't know how a, the a, hell he figured that. So exactly. Howard goes earlier, but he's thinking, we're going to get there first. And that's the big problem. His entire plan depends on getting there first. There's no plan B if Howard's there first. No, he's there's never no, set up a plan yet, There's no right?
0: contingency plan. Mm-hmm.
1: And they're also going to assume that the Federals are going to make mistakes. Yeah, the other thing he does, he assumes that Howard is not going to defend his flank because of the reputation he has. He thinks that, well, okay, Howard's going to sit there, and when we hit them, when Stewart hits the right flank, they're going to run like sheep and not just like Chancellorsville because that's the reputation he has. He doesn't assume that Howard might have learned at this point. Exactly. That's the other problem. He also – you know, he assumed that his generals were going to communicate, exactly. and they didn't. And so yeah. and that's the biggest problem with this. He assumed that Lee – stewart and his cavalry guy led by jackson William jackson yeah. were all gonna f- get together and talk about this as this was flowing and they didn't at all so you can kind of see where this is going now the big issue and the, the one that's that the, the hood people don't want to talk about is hood wasn't there he was unlike sherman who did come with howard hood stayed back in atlanta four miles away at his headquarters so you've got new a new general in charge with a plan that has really one way to work and a million ways not to, and he's not there. He does, Hood does nothing to coordinate the attacks, and he placed no single person in charge because you have two corps commanders, Lee and Stewart, okay? Neither of them were told who was in charge of who. No, nope. there was no one who was really the headliner on the field. So you can kind of see now. Howard did a full command on the other side of, of his army. I mentioned Sherman was with him to help coordinate those movements. This is and his Howard- sole
0: time. This is his first time ever commanding
1: an army. Of course, Howard is Howard. He's going to be cautious. He's going to be slow as he probably should have been. Howard knows Hood and he knows Hood's aggressive and he knows Hood is going to hit him somewhere soon. And he's expecting it at any moment. So he kind of crawls towards Ezra Church and that railroad. He didn't know it at the time, but his adversary was still in atlanta lee was still in atlanta yeah, lee at was time. held back because hood thought that you know? that sherman
0: might attack so he holds him back and then all of a sudden he's like okay go and by then it's too late
1: and so howard has that opportunity to set up when when lee Stephen d lee's entire plan was based on the fact they were going to get there first and entrench. there was no alternative if they got there and howard was already there there was not there was no even thinking about it lee finally gets going and and it's just like today, it's hot, it's sticky, it's a full gold bond powder situation for the boys, they've got to walk on that typical Atlanta July day through all that crap. And they also have to move quickly because they know in their minds they got to stay ahead of Howard, right? By the time they get there or get nearby, the troops are already exhausted. Dawn of July 28th, the day of the battle, the federal troops start getting close to the area. They start running into Confederate cavalry at this point yep. in the woods near Ezra Church. Now, the woods around Ezra Church is thick. I mean it's it's dense, it's a forest and that causes some problems for the Union as well. Howard again is still fearing that imminent attack by Hood. At any it, point he's going to be attacked. And
0: Sherman's telling him, Sherman's like you're not going to get attacked. Howard's going into this with not just the ghost of Chancellorsville following him. And that's quite evident by the way when he sets up his troops, he's very careful how to set them up and as he's setting them up he's making sure his flanks are protected. Because he said Mm -hmm. to Sherman, I'm going to be attacked. And Sherman's like, no, 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 you're not. And Blackjack actually had said the same thing to Sherman. We're going to get attacked when we go to this position. And Sherman kept saying, I I don't think so. Like Howard is setting up his men very carefully, not just because of Chancellorsville, but because he went to school with John Bell Hood. He's his classmate at West Point and he knows him. Howard at this point has no idea that he is going to be fighting against his friend, Stephen D. Lee, because the union doesn't know know that that change has happened. They don't know who they're going up against. But Howard's like, this is Hood. He's going to attack me. He's aggressive. Howard actually wrote his wife and said, Hood is
1: stupid, but he's aggressive. Mm -hmm. But Howard, I mean, he's cautious on a scale of zero to McClellan. He's a solid nine on his speed with this one. He (laughs) takes his time to set up and he's going to extend his divisions one at a time. Yep. He's going to personally place them. It's going to be really, really quiet. He's keeping an eye, a close eye on his flanks because it's because obviously he is going to be. Sherman says, okay, well, you do you, but I wish you kind of hurry. But he doesn't interfere in Howard. He keeps him going. So by 11 o'clock in the morning, all of his troops are in, for Howard are all in position along that ridge line north of that Lick Skillet Road. Mm-hmm. The place that Hood had intended to place his troops, so Howard smartly is going to refuse his right flank now. Yeah. So now he's in a good position. He's all entrenched. He has his right right flank refused. It's all centered around an area that, of, that, of that Ezra Church. And again, boys will be boys. They have an upside down popsicle mo, you know, situation. That's how they <laughs> set how, how they set that up. But what Howard does, he's taken the time while he's there to take down trees. He's going to build entrenchments. He's pretty happy about the situation. He, he's, yeah, he knows he's got a, he's got a good situation. He's stuck in the middle of the woods, which is an issue because he doesn't have artillery placements, but he's got a good, he's got good breastworks. He's got a good defensive line and he has his right flank refused.
0: Yeah. Howard will say that in his memoirs that it was more the infantry with their rifles that repulsed the attacks during the battle than it was the artillery because it was so difficult to place. But he was quite happy with how things were set up. Around 10 a.m., you have General John C. Brown's division of Lee's Corps. They are going to be coming into attack. As he goes in, he gets reports from Confederate cavalry that the Yankees were in their front and that they were already entrenched. And so immediately Hood's plan is thrown off. Yeah, right I there.
1: Mean, so the, the Rebs are coming, they're getting from Atlanta, they're coming down that Lick Skillet Road, yep. you know, chanting where they're singing along, right? John C. Brown's division, the other John Brown, Mary, and they're coming down. Now, Lee and Brown, they're hearing these rumors that they from the Calvary, the Union is is in the area, right? Mm. And the skirmishes ahead of them are on the Lick Skillet Road. There's troops that are definitely there. Lee is thinking that the troops are just light skirmishers. He still thinks he has the initiative because he still thinks that he's there before Howard. He he doesn't realize Howard's already there. He's already you know he's, he's doing all the all the Howard things he's doing, right? <laughs> setting up the setting up the track. He's doing everything he's going to do. You know? doing Bible study before they go you know, in? He's thinking, okay, we'll get up. It's, this is going to be a quick defensive – we're going to set up our defensive attacks. He's going to come. We're going to hit him, then we're going to route him. He's, already, he's still confident at this point. Lee is going up this bad intelligence, this bad intel that this is. he's got skirmishes in front of him and nobody else. Yeah. He's going to order John C. Brown's division to attack as soon as possible. And with his four brigades, talking the 3rd, the 18th, 26th, and 32nd Tennessee. So he's going to lead them all into it, despite the fact that Henry Clayton isn't there yet. Exactly. so keep in mind in your, in your little head there okay the original plan all along it's already going off the trail he's told you know by hood don't bring on a general engagement set up a defense now he's talking about sending in four brigades to attack a position right off the bat it, the plans going yeah. off the wagon he also was supposed to wait for um clayton and he does he, he doesn't do that he goes right in so brown's going to open the attack which is the first of Four failures. This is the first attack on this position. Yep. Through these dense woods. Immediately, right off the bat, he has communication issues again. He doesn't even see the Union line until he was right on top of them. He thought he was so, going to
0: surprise the, what he thought were the skirmishers, And then it's so, like, oh, shit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> They're walking up, and all of a sudden... They see the Union Army rise and fire a hellacious, brutal ru- volley right yep. into these Confederates from behind these entrenchments, which made that Rebel advance impossible. So right off the bat, you've got the pucker effect immediately. Yep. Okay, he's like, "Well, okay, we're going to talk about the carnage as this goes." You know, in Brown's division, a guy named Private Philip Stevenson he talks about this initial volley. He says, yep. "Gallant charges were made." But the attack became one-sided, and it was a humiliating defeat. Now, he was either talking about Ezra Church or the Indians game the night before. It was one or the other, okay? okay. You talk about how quickly they were surprised and how hard it was, but this is where the the mistakes really continue to be, you know, you know, continue along. The Rebs are going to try this again, and this is going to be the same game plan over and over and over again. They're going to try to attack that that Union right flank now, and already, now they're not waiting for Stewart. They're going to go right at the flank right now, and Howard's ready, and he drives them back pretty easily. The Rebs marched four miles in the brutal heath, went straight into battle that they weren't ready for. So when you're thinking about the initial game plan, think of a football game. The game plan, first play of the first quarter is out the window. So now you're chasing your tail already.
0: Exactly. And the other thing, too, is that Howard and Blackjack are both able to throw in their reserves when needed. They have planned for this very, very well. And the next attack that comes in is going to be General Henry... Delamar Clayton's attack. He and his division arrives as Brown is attacking, and he's ordered in, and he fares no better than Brown. Communication again is still really, really horrible. The one thing that happens is a guy named Gibson has his Louisianans here, and he's ordered in before the rest of the division because Lee bypasses Clayton and goes right to him and says attack and doesn't bother to tell Clayton that Mm -hmm. the fighting is very, very, very vicious. This is fighting that's going to happen near Ezra Church. And then they end up drawing 400 yards into a ravine. And they're like, fuck this. We can't keep doing this.
1: No. And you look at Randall Gibson as Louisiana's I mean, he's forced to charge Leroy Jenkins style into this. Yeah. And so, again, it goes back to communication again. There was so many issues at all. Jacob Brantley, an officer in, the, uh, in Tennessee, he says extreme heat, a scarcity of water in a hurried manner, which we entered the engagement. That's why they got beaten back. And so Gibson, he gets beaten back pretty quickly. Now Clayton, we talked before about Henry Clayton, he's going to keep attacking that that Union line and taking heavy casualties. Now this is like a hammer hitting the nail over and over and over and yeah. over again. While Gibson's men are getting smoked, Clayton orders a guy named Alpheus Baker's Alabamans to attack right at the center of the Ezra church. So that's where he's going to go. They got hit hard and driven back as well. It was a repeating, repeating thing. So by noontime, 1230, give or take, the die has been cast where this battle's going. And Mm -hmm. At some point, Stephen D. Lee probably would have had someone say, okay, we need to reform, rethink this. But the guy who would have said that to him in John Bell Hood is not not there. He has to follow his plan. Now the plan went out the window, but he decided to do his own thing. So by 1230... The third attack is going to begin.
0: Manigault. This is
1: Arthur Manigault. His brigade of Alabamas and South Carolinians, they are ordered to attack the Union position and hold that ridge near Ezra Church. Okay, that sounds like the original plan. Sounds good. Brown told him, according to Manigault, this is according to him, you'll have no problem taking it because... Sharp's division a little while ago, who was in Brown Center, they got up there. So you'll have no problem now. Now they're weakened. Now you can get right up there. So no problem. So Manigold goes in, immediately gets his ass handed to him, right? They fall back after the feds countercharge. Manigold's going to try again. Same thing's going to happen. Yeah. He's going to get actually within about 20 feet of the federal line.
0: They do get pretty get close. close. They do. Some of these guys. They right? do. It is close
1: at some points in this battle. They fall back again. So now they're thinking about a third time third time's a charge now he's got about 700 guys left yeah and he started with about a thousand the attrition's running running by now so by now Manigold sees this thing as a joke he says this is an absolute freaking there's no Mm -hmm. freaking way this is going to happen he goes to brown and begs him we got to stop this shit Mm -hmm. this is not going to work we have to stop yeah and brown says you know something I wish I could stop you, but this is Stephen Dealey's game. I don't have the orders to stop you, so you have to go in. And so he's like, all right, well, I guess I'll have to. And this is it's interesting, though. John Brown has one of those moments where maybe a little bit of conscience. As soon as Manigold goes to start his third attack, Brown stops him and says, you know what? Fuck it. I'll take the heat. Well, I can't send you back up there again. But that's then he an still throws Manigold murder.
0: under the bus during, in his after battle well, report. Well, that's the
1: best part about it. And so Brown says, I'll take responsibility. But he does blame him. Yeah. And he, he says that Mandigal didn't fight hard enough. He did admit that Howard had a good defensive position, had more guys. But he does say that he didn't get there because he didn't fight hard enough. So, again, it's the whole cover your ass thing yep. is how it goes.
0: Yeah. And then we have um, Stewart finally arriving on yep. the scene. And he's going to throw in... Uh, general edward c walthall he attacks while loring is still coming up and forming and this is around two o'clock in the afternoon he goes in and it's the same
1: thing just absolute well, carnage stu- gets repulsed well alexander stewart's an interesting guy though alexander stewart he's from mississippi from biloxi okay just like you he's a former math teacher after the war like Every failed Confederate, he he becomes an insurance salesman. <laughs> that's what he does. Well, what's interesting about him, Mary? Uh, maybe you don't know this, but in 1908, he was named the first commissioner for the Chickamauga Chattanooga National Battlefield Park. So that's what that was his job after the war. So it's very okay, cool. interesting how he was. But he does his fourth attack. So Ezra his his corps is approaching the fields, and he sets up in front of Lee's two absolutely broken divisions. This bust busted up yeah. right at this point hood's plan is completely out the window again gets a lick lick skillet bridge ridge, set up defend hit howard when he gets there and then hit him on his flank that's the plan in a nutshell basically keep We're them never... from
0: the railway which they are right. managing to keep them from the railway but they are getting fucking decimated while doing it like this battle is we'll talk about this um in the aftermath it's horrible
1: Stephen dealie in- instead of having stewart attack Howard's flank, which is per the original plan, he's going to have Stewart attack with Edward Walthall, to, you, to your point we just mentioned. He's going to attack where Brown had tried and failed and tried and failed and tried, and tried and failed. He's going to keep doing that. And, of course, it's going to lead to yet another uncoordinated, messy, bloody attack because there's no way they can take that position. There's just no way. Lee still thinks, though, the Lions can crack under the attack. He still thinks so. He's still confident for whatever reason. He's confident that despite all the bloodshed and the repeated failures, which is turning into a Tupelo 2.0, by the way. It really, <laughs> I think really think we're is. seeing
0: like he—he's kind of like Hood Junior in a way.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think because the communication and all the coordination, all the issues they had, it was leading to a disaster just like Tupelo, and it was just Walthall. Of course, is going to have the same exact results. Waldo's actually going to suffer the worst casualties of any division at this. They're the ones who are going to get really beaten up with this. The Confederates have an
0: average of 30% casualties for all the ones thrown in.
1: So that definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. That's yes. what this is. This this is insanity. So Stephen D Lee is going to keep doing this repeatedly. He's going to keep hitting him, hitting his thumb with the hammer, and wondering why it keeps hurting. And but he keeps doing it. Walthall's division fails again. This is the fourth fail now, and they fall back to be protected by William Loring's division, who's going to basically be there to protect him. This is when they start losing officers, right? So around this time, Loring is gonna get shot in the chest. Now he's gonna live, mm-hmm. but he's gonna be taken out of the picture. He's gonna be out. We mentioned Alexander Stewart, he's gonna get hit in the head or the forehead with something, some kind of shrapnel, but he's gonna get nicked. He will live too, and he'll be taken out of the battle as well. And this is where Cheatham is finally gonna to get to take over, you know, take yeah. over his core. Yeah. But now you couple the fact that Stephen Dealy is losing his troops at a ghastly pace. Now he's losing command field commanders. You're not talking about sergeants and cabinets. He's losing generals and he's losing corps commanders. Now this is continuing on and on and on. The butcher's bill gets higher and higher yeah. and higher as this goes on. They just, and, you know, there's a
0: Tennessee regiment that um, goes through seven commanders.
1: They do one they, after ta- the
0: other, the 49 49- is
1: it the 49th? They lose, right. They, they lose one and the two, then three, whoever takes over. Yep. It's like the drummer for, for spinal tap. Yep. You, you, you name that, you're done. You're, you're up. And that's what happened with them, right? Howard, okay, sitting on the Union side, he's thrilled. He's watching Lee run into the fan over and over and over again. Exactly. Well, he, laughing, and he and Blackjack
0: right? are able to throw in their reserves when they need to. And they're he and Blackjack seem to be working very well together in this. Because Blackjack is the one name that comes up as much as Howard's in this battle. Now, yes, Sherman is here, but he does take a step back. You know, like he's not really telling Howard what to do. Howard's making his own decisions here. But it's quite evident, you know, like not only is this showing that that Howard's able to conduct himself in battle in charge of an army, but Blackjack Logan is having a good day here, too. They're both throwing in the reserves that they need to, putting the men mm-hmm. where they need to be. And it, it's going quite well for them.
1: You know, I had heard somewhere that Oliver Howard didn't have an aggressive bone in his body, Mary. Okay, did I too. didn't. But I'll tell you, okay, there's allegedly Howard's army fired a million shots in this yep. battle. Now, I'm not sure that's true. It's a lot of numbers. But one thing is true is they were firing so heavy and so hot that when they were putting the powder into the rifles, was they about... were sparking. Yep. They were lighting up. That's how hot the barrels were. That's how hard these Union guys were fighting. Um, Howard's guys were fighting really, really hard. The casualties on the Rebel side were appalling, absolutely appalling. Most people think that this battle... Was the most vicious of any of the Atlantic campaigns, including Cheatham Hill. Okay. Sergeant Eugene McWayne, 127th Illinois, Mary. I'm going to quote him, says the ribs laid in line of battle behind a chestnut rail fence, dead as stones Our balls passed through the rails as if they were paper. So just imagine the situation where these rebels are behind these fences and they're just getting drilled and drilled and is dropping dead and they're yep. lining up. Some said it was perfect murder. They yep. called this. And that was that was a phrase they said. Yeah. The feds were sitting back and they were stunned The Rebs kept coming. They
0: just kept going and going and going. And you got to wonder, like one person said, the Rebs are caught in the open and slaughtered. That sounds a lot like Franklin. I was going to say, if any of them ended up being at Franklin, would they not just look at this and be like, holy shit, this Mm -hmm. is like Ezra Church. But we do know that there's men fighting here on the Confederate side that are going to be fighting at Franklin. And you got to wonder if they're thinking the same thing, like, holy fuck.
1: I think (laughs) one thing that separates the two is the weather. Franklin was cold. Yeah, Franklin. Yeah, this was exactly. hot as hell. Yeah. So you picture you're in a situation where you've got the black powder, you got the guns, the, the guns are hot as hell. You're fighting that hot Georgia sun. Mm-hmm. Close to the end of the day, Lee finally wakes up from his antifreeze hangover and says, you know something, this is a waste of time. So he sees the futility of the attacks and finally calls it off. He drops back and sets up a defensive position all along while Hood is still back. He's still back in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Even after all of this, after four failed attacks... Hood is staying in his headquarters in Atlanta. And yeah. we mentioned it wasn't his best day losing a fastball, whatever you want to call it. He never left his headquarters at any point, which is surprising considering how aggressive he was and how new Stephen D. Lee's command was, right? Exactly. So, but he was still issuing orders. And this what was interesting about it, though, is whether we talk about the communication, he, he was four miles away. Yeah. Four miles, okay? He was issuing orders that were taking forever to get there. Okay. And I said before. Mary, you with your little Canadian legs could roller skate backwards quicker with your whistle <laughs> on your headband listen to disco <laughs> faster than it took for the messengers to get from Atlanta to, to Ezra Church for sports. Actually, whatever I would be reason. singing Call Me, maybe. Right. Well, by the time the messages got there, the battle was over already. And so mm-hmm. the whole question is, what is up with Hood, right? Now, there's rumors that his physical stuff was going on, but whatever, whatever the issue was – He was delinquent to everything with this. He had no part of this. He was not up front where he should have been. He stayed back at the headquarters and he let this happen while it was going on. He didn't seem to be abreast of what was going on because he thought they were still fighting defense right up until the very end. He was quite surprised that this happened. Now, Hood's original orders, again, was to hold that area at the Skillet Road. We saw this over and over and over again. Hit him when he can. Federal Union Army was approaching from a defensive position. Well, they did. They were going to protect them from that making in uh, Western Railroad. That was, yeah. Again, that's, that's the whole plan. And it all went to shit when they got there. For whatever reason, there was no plan B of, okay, let's get there, and the Union's already there. What do we do? Now, Hood, after the battle, was interesting about this, he doesn't criticize Stephen D Lee, which is mind numbing. Nope. He actually praises him, and he doesn't say you did a shitty job, you did the wrong things. I think probably why he didn't want to, the guy he handpicked to do this. He didn't, want he to didn't rip him; yeah. and it would make him look bad, yeah. right? He does end up upsetting Hardy though to take over, which is kind of the actions versus the words. So you're saying, hey Stephen D, you did nothing wrong. Oh, by the way, William Hardy's going to be taken over now. So it's kind of like, okay, well, what? Yeah. what's more important? And he only
0: spends, like in his memoirs, Hood only spends like two paragraphs on this battle, whereas any other battle he's fought in, he spends like apparently like pages and pages and pages. But we're talking about a guy that, He's been severely injured, and I don't think he's like, you know, there's questions as to if he's like, really, was he physically fit to command an army like they have to lift him onto his horse? He's not the same John Bell Hood that we saw in 1862 and early 1863,
1: right? He was losing body parts. He was psychological. Who knows what psychological damage he was dealing with? But he certainly you know, physically was having a tough time. Now, these casualty figures, now they're not as, as grand as Antietam or Franklin, mm-hmm. but when you look at the percentages, so the Confederates, a lot of 11,000 guys engaged, they lost 3,000 guys. And to your point, the number you hit a little while ago, that's, that's 30%, Okay. That includes field commanders. You're talking about Stuart and Loring, as well as those all those several regimental commanders. So 30% of your engaged people are casualties. The Union, out of 9,000, they lose 600 guys. And that's because of what Howard did to set up the defensive position. Mm-hmm. Although Howard admittedly said, well, he, he claimed that the Rebs lost 7,000 guys. Okay. Yeah, Howard's now, maybe, are a little bit. Now he could only count on one hand, so that was part of his problem. <laughs> so that's probably why he, he didn't was have a math, math right. professor, though. That's true. Well, who knows what his deal was? But certainly, when you look at the fact that how many the, the sheer firepower, I don't buy the million shots thing mm-hmm. because that that's a lot. Okay, but if a million shots was true on a one mile battlefield, that's five hundred bullets per yard. Now that's a lot. I don't think that's I think it's more hyperbole because I don't mm-hmm. think that's true. But but the reality was it talks about the pure carnage and the absolute hell these Confederates went through mm-hmm. because of bad communication, bad leadership from the beginning, and an uncoordinated attack. So they got there and they flew by the seat of their pants, yep. primarily because Stephen D. Lee's experience. Now, his primary battle experience was at Tupelo, and he did the same game plan. He attacked an entrenched position mm-hmm. and got his ass kicked, and that's what he did. Yep. Isn't he and the one, Stephen though, that Lee-
0: kind of kicked Sherman's ass at Chickasaw?
1: Well, Sherman, Sherman had his own moments, yeah. <laughs> but but Stephen D. Lee, though, the thing about him is he doesn't assume any responsibility no, for doesn't. this. Though, you know who he blames? He blames his own troops. Yep. he throws them all under the bus. He says, yep. "I am convinced that if all the troops had displayed equal spirit, we would have been successful." And my question is this, Mary, to you: How do you take thirty percent casualties? And then say your guys didn't show equal spirit. Exactly. Seems to me that they probably did if they had thirty percent calories. Exactly. But that's what happens. Is now Hood doesn't he? They they throw this one under the rug. I mean all of them. Hood's memoirs. You know how many pages he has in his memoirs? Yeah, it's it's two church? paragraphs.
0: It's just two paragraphs that he spends, and he has spent like he will take pages and pages to talk about other battles.
1: And what he says, he doesn't even see this as a loss. No. And to your point, you mention why. The union never got the railroad no. here. So in Hood's mind, they did defend it. In his mind, they lost a bunch of guys in Italy, mm. But did Sherman and Howard get to make it a Western railroad? No. So he says, and I quote, Ezra Church was not a defeat as no material advantage was gained by either side. So this would be one of those situations where you got your butt kicked pretty good, but you held even though he, they held by a really bad situation, but I don't see how you can take this as a W or even a tie. He didn't blame Lee, as I mentioned before. But it's unusual, though,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that he didn't blame Lee, considering he blamed everybody except the Rosewoods clown for Franklin. <laughs> exactly, right? exactly. Which doesn't make any sense to me. So you're going to blame Clayburn and all these guys for Franklin, and you're not going to blame Stephen D. Lee for Ezra? And I think it all goes back to the fact that he put him in charge himself personally. Exactly. It was a controversial move over Cheatham and Claiborne, and he he couldn't blame him because it would make himself look bad. And I think that's a big part of it. Other guys, Arthur Manigold, who hated everybody at this point, he blames the loss on his lousy generals, which he was probably, out of all the people, he was probably right. And Mm -hmm. many of the soldiers felt the same. I think the confidence was completely lost in Hood at this battle. Yep. it Army was shaky. Tennessee.
0: It was shaky to begin with, but, you know, afterwards there's this kind of general dis- like it's described as this one soldier said general dissatisfaction among the men of Army of Tennessee, you know, because Johnston was the favorite. The men liked him, you know, and yeah, he's not the aggressive commander that Davis wants, but, you know, Hood comes in and they're kind of like, this is a guy who's sacrificed his body on the altar of the Confederacy and he's he expects all his men to do the same thing it's quite evident in that speech he gives before they go into this it's like yeah don't worry god will will it and you'll you'll win we're expecting you to kind of thing you know there was one guy that said it was a very savage battle and it was for severity unsurpassed by any in the campaign and it's sort of in some ways i see it as foreshadowing franklin this is like a mini version of franklin how they go in and they're absolutely slaughtered and they just keep going in and in and in. Now it's not as many casualties, but still it's a very horrific battle. Over on the union side of things, You know, you have Oliver Otis Howard probably has one of his best days in the Civil War at this battle. Despite Sherman not believing there's going to be an attack, Howard makes sure his troops have the necessary fortifications and he's always keeping his flanks protected. And yes, part of that is the ghost of Chancellorsville. And part of that is he knows who is attacking him. He knows it's Mm -hmm. Hood. Now, the one thing that shocks Howard is when he finds out that it was actually his friend Stephen D. Lee that was doing the attacking. Mm -hmm. That that was because they were friends and he couldn't believe it. But this is Howard's first battle after taking command of the Army of the Tennessee. And he said that I was delighted with the conduct of the officers and the men. And he especially praises Black Jack Logan in this. And I think some of this is because he knows what's just happened to Black Jack and he's trying to keep the peace with him. He says, Major General Logan was spirited and energetic, going at once to the point where he apprehended the slightest danger of the enemy's success. His decision and resolution everywhere animated and encouraged the officers of the men. He also loves what the troops have done here. And he said that General Logan, though he was not feeling the best and he was very very worn out that the success of the day was as much attributed to him as to any other troop in this so so General Logan he is saying he is one of the major reasons for this battle being as successful as it was
1: when you're fighting in the woods you no, don't, don't have as much artillery but when you're in the woods and you can entrench that way and you got a guy. Who keeps hitting you in your front's recipe for disaster? Right? I think the post battle thing we were talking about a few minutes ago was that wavering and shaking opinion of probably Hood's leadership overall. Now, soldiers liked Hood, Johnston, because Johnston didn't get them killed recklessly, right? Yeah, exactly. By, by the same reason why they like, like Sherman. He wanted to protect his troops. I mean, you look at Johnston and Sherman at Benville; they just, they just stared at each other, Mary. That's what they did. You look at overall how the commander, com, you know, how they run their battles. And, of course, the soldiers are going to like a guy who's not reckless. How could you like a guy, in all honesty, who is promoted and he leads you into an offensive attack that was supposed to be defensive? You run into the meat grinder four times, okay? Yeah. Meanwhile, you don't even come to the battlefield. You stay back at the hotel right at the headquarters Yep. and then what you then what you do is you praise the guy who was leading you into the meat grinder
0: Yep. who got that? like i right. that that would just i would be like holy shit the one thing i want to mention is you know there's it's believed that howard is not an aggressive commander but he has this to say in his memoirs after the battle he describes himself as feeling pretty ambitious and he wanted to put fresh troops in to sweep the field and make a bold and strong effort to capture Atlanta. So he's all like, let's keep fucking going after this. But he recognizes that Logan's men are very tired, as were Blairs and Dodges. And he said, the Atlanta works were complete and strong. Therefore, my cooler judgment said, let well enough alone. So right there, Howard, after this is like, let's keep going. And he takes a step back and he's like, you know what? No. And I think that's the sign of a really good commander right there. He wants that, that adrenaline wants him to keep going because they've had a success right now. They have not captured the railway, but they've managed to drive these troops away back into Atlanta once again, you know, but he's just like, he's thinking of that goal, like, oh my God, we could do this. We could do this. We've beat them you know, let's keep going, but he lets cooler heads prevail, uh-huh.
1: you know? It does. It leads to the march of the sea. It gives him more confidence he has. And I, and I think what, what that does is it ends up in a situation where he's got a guy now he can, he can trust and he can put him in, in, in place who can do what his orders are, stick with the orders and and play the game plan that he's supposed to play. Mm-hmm. And but it which is ironic because Howard did not get the railroad. So if you look at a strategic type of battle, he did not achieve his victory, his goals. But at the same time, he didn't get his division erect, his core erect either. Exactly. He he was able to, really help win a psychological battle and i think for him personally is when he had to have if he got flanked again at ezra he was done i, don't, I mean even you would have to not defend him anymore Mary. no he i would <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to find a new one-armed man to, to, to follow you know but i think i think what it did is it did give sherman it's just speculating he it did give sherman the confidence to put him as one of his his wings on the march of the sea yeah Because I think he gained his trust at Ezra. And I think that's a big part of
0: it. Yeah. Well, there was... Sherman wrote to Schofield after the battle. And Sherman says something very similar in his memoirs about Howard. But this was a letter that he wrote to Schofield. And Howard actually discovered it when he was writing his memoirs in the 1900s. Sherman said of Howard, General Howard's conduct today had an excellent effect on his command. After the firing ceased, he walked the line and the men gathered about him in the most affectionate manner. And he at once gained their hearts and their confidence. I deem this a perfect restoration to confidence in themselves and the leader of that army. So Sherman knows that he's, you know, he's saying I've, I put the right guy in place. And I think we look back at Howard with 150 years, and we hear Chancellorsville and the supposed mistakes at Gettysburg, which I don't think he made mistakes at Gettysburg. But I think if we were to go back in real time, we might see a different Oliver Otis Howard and have a different opinion of him. That clearly William Tecumseh Sherman respects this guy. He puts him in command for a reason, not just because he's from West Point. I think this is Howard's, probably his best day in the Civil War.
1: Well, it's definitely part of the Howard Redemption tour. So that crescent moon was shining brightly. It definitely was. On Ezra Church that day. So what's next, Mary?
0: So next, we are going to be talking Battle of Wilson's Creek. And then we will be talking about the conspirators. For the Abraham Lincoln assassination. We will Ooh, be having that, Dave that Taylor risky. join us for that discussion. He is at Lynn Conspirators on Twitter if you wanna check him out. But he's gonna be joining us for that discussion in a couple of weeks.
1: Yep, a lot of fun stuff coming down the pike. So Wilson's yep. Creek next week. We are going to do the conspirators and then we are taking well deserved week off, Mary. We are. We're gonna take a little. we're gonna take a week off, I think and just kind of hang out. Yeah, Maybe. We well, who knows? Maybe we'll change our mind. We'll, we'll figure that out. But yeah, we'll that's, that's the plan. That's yeah. the plan. Anyway, I thought it was a good discussion. I think it's fun. I think not a lot of people study Ezra Church, but I think it's a microchasm of a lot of what Hood did. I think it's something that the anti-Howard people don't really focus on. Um, they don't talk a heck of a lot about it, admittedly. But I think it's one that's an important story because really it was setting up that real strong right end of that union line. It repelled... Hood's attack. And it really, really gave Stephen D. Lee a kick in the coin purse as far as going forward after that. No it, question.
0: It absolutely did. So um, any parting words?
1: No, I think it's a it's fun discussion. I think it's a good thing. This was definitely, uh, definitely a fun one to to mm-hmm. kind of dust off the old brain with as we go back into Atlanta. So we talked a lot about Atlanta early on with yeah. this stuff. And we kind of breeze right through this. We knew we were going to get back to it, but I think it definitely tells the story. When you're looking at the Atlanta campaign, you look at two things. You look at Kennesaw, you look at Ezra. If you want to look at actual, real, real battles. Mm-hmm. And I think they're both important. And I think it's it was a lesson of one union guy mistakenly attacked frontally on the Confederate, and the Confederates pay back the favor on this one. And they kind of even Steven's it out. But it showed how important it was to play defensive, how it was to have your logistics, how important it was to have good communication. And more importantly, how important it is to put the right guys in charge. Not just pick the guys you like because of political reasons. I think Sherman chose wisely. And I think Hood chose poorly.
0: Absolutely, he did. And that's the, you know, that's the other thing to remember when you're looking at Ezra Church is this is kind of, it's going a little bit deeper into Hood's command and understanding a little bit more of why the morale was so bad. You know, in some ways, Hood is is a good, he has his talents. But I think by this point, his injuries are really, really starting to play into how he's commanding. And he is just, he is aggressive. And that's what Jeff Davis wanted. But he's not holding the morale of the army at all. And it's quite evident that this starts kind of falling apart at Ezra Church. And Ezra Church is, in many ways, a precursor to what we are going to see happen on November the 30th, 1864 at Franklin.
1: All right, well, off we go to Wilson's Creek. We're going back further back in the early part of the war Trans-Mississippi
0: for our Trans-Mississippi fans. I know yeah, we
1: have a games, few Trans-Mississippi yeah, fans. Getting to talk about old Wilson's <laughs> Creek and all that stuff that comes after that that, that we talked before that we talked about. So anyway, so um, off we go. So a great time as always looking forward to the next one. So by the time this drops, we'll have our live that same morning. We got a lot of fun stuff coming up down the road. So, Mary? As always, a pleasure. It was a good time. Pleasure again, as always, as all yours. (laughs) And um, despite the deja vu moment at the beginning, we had a good time with this. And we have a lot of fun talking about the boys, especially Howard, in a positive frame this time, as we can really talk about how things he did right and not the things he did wrong. So maybe there'll be a good meme not making fun of Howard. (laughs) We'll find out. We shall see. Well, thank you
0: to all of our listeners for supporting us for these last 50 episodes. And thank you especially to you, Darren, for sticking by me. And um, with these last fifty okay, episodes,
1: but... oh God! Yeah, you know what? <laughs> we all have our crosses to bear, Mary. Hey, I, yeah, I know. I'm that's working a big one on for working you. on I'm working on sainthood, but that's okay. I know you are. Uh, it's all good. <laughs> anyway, so everybody, anyway, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Looking forward to the next one. So, thanks for checking us out and supporting to Mary's Point. These fifty episodes. Holy crap! Our one year anniversary of this podcast is coming up in just a couple of weeks. We'll have some fun with that. It is. Anyway, off to Wilson's Creek we go. Okay. See you guys later. Peace out. Bye.